The Fake Show is brought to you by Brew City Brand, Hutchison and Stefan, The Food Connection, LV.com, and by Mr. Antenna. Lennon, they said, how would you like to be remembered? I remember John Lennon said, just as a good little rock and roll band. You know, we want to be just a good little rock and roll band with horns. One of the things that Chicago was about, let's record and write whatever we want. How can we use this horn section, which is an integral part of this ensemble, uniquely? Scenes from the rock band Chicago's award-winning documentary film, Now More Than Ever, The History of Chicago. It premiered on CNN New Year's Day and came in at number one in the ratings on that night. The film had already won several awards on the film festival circuit. Producer Peter Pardini traveled with the band for months and recorded the most comprehensive history of the group's achievements. Peter, welcome to the program, and how did it come to be that you got involved in this project? Yeah, back in 2010, I they needed somebody to kind of come in and last second and do like a five, six-day thing on their uh, behind-the-scenes on their Christmas album. And uh, Lou, um, who's my uncle, had recommended me because he knew that I had just graduated from college and would probably do it for no money. <laughs> so <laughs> they, they brought me on to do that, and then... I did a good job, and it became a thing where, hey, why don't you uh, come on the road with us, take you everywhere, and you know, bring you on to uh, you'll you'll be the one man staff of our, our video crew. So your uncle Lou Pardini, who's in the band, did that make it harder or easier for you to to maybe get into this? Because I know that you still had to prove yourself. Well, yeah, I think it was. An, I mean, going into it, I thought it would be a mixture of the two. I mean, I was just really grateful that you know my first big break to be, you know, when I'm traveling around the world, but also have a family member there. I mean, just, just for me personally, that was, that made it a lot easier for me. But yeah, I think there, that there was some perception on my behalf that maybe there would be some, you know, this kid's just here because of his uncle and he's, you know, he doesn't deserve to be here sort of thing. But I, I never sensed that 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 wasn't an actual thing that was all in my head to begin with. And everyone was just completely accepting because, you know, Chicago, what I learned was that they're, they're basically a family themselves. So they, they understand what it's like to be loyal to someone and to, to bring someone in. You know, if, if you do a good job, they're going to bring you in regardless of, you know, where you come from. It's not, you know, when I, when I came into working with them, I was expecting, you know, the don't look this person in the eye, don't do that, don't yeah. do this. But there's almost no rules. It's great. I mean, I don't really know how to put it other than it's, there's not, it's not what you would think from rock stars who've been around for you know, nearly half a century. So so to have the kind of a, a total access that you have, were you actually up there on stage with them as they were playing? Yeah, that was, that was pretty nerve wracking the first time I did it because I was, you know, trying to feel out what was allowed and what wasn't. As time went on, it was being able to get right, right up close to, you know, Tris playing drums right in front of Robert on stage and worrying whether or not they're going to look at me while I'm filming, like, hey, get out of here. But that never happened. So I mean, I, now I see, I still see on Facebook some fans post pictures from, you know, concert maybe three or four years ago, and I'm in the frame and I'm like, ah, oh, man, I was completely blocking Jason on stage. <laughs> 
You know, I read a comment that you made that was pretty interesting, and and that was that because these guys really never make any mistakes on stage, it made it so much easier to edit this. Oh, yeah. I mean, since it was just me going out on the road, you know, I thought it would be a creative idea to basically just shoot the concert from a different angle every single night. You know, they don't wear the same clothing every night, but it's generally generally the same. I mean, you bring out your your clothing case and there's probably five or six choices that you wear throughout the tour. And so I thought, hey, if I just shoot a different guy every night and edit it all together, it'll look like a multi-cam shoot and I can kind of cut the similar clothing together between shots and right. kind of make it look like, you know, one show. And, you know, if people notice the clothing difference and so be it. It's still, you know, them performing the song the same exact way every night. Same thing with this thing we did back in May of 2013. I took a crew out on the road and we actually shot with a motion picture camera over nine shows and did the same thing. And I added that together. And that's, that's probably going to be coming out towards the end of the year or beginning of next year as a full concert shot. Peter, these guys had so many hits even before you were born. You're a young guy. And can you believe that this horn section has been intact since 1967, I think it is? You know, and I, I, it's, it's amazing. And I, I think that it's almost that they have to be intact for the band to be as good as it still is. I mean, there's that. I mean, Walt, I'm sure you've heard interviews before. Even Jimmy says kind of the same thing, you know, that if they were to put their finger on what it is that makes it work, then it wouldn't work anymore. And I think it's just one of those things, you know, that uh, it's, it's amazing to watch them and Robert up there and they perform the same exact way every single night. And, and it, it's not monotonous. I mean, it's energetic, inspiring to watch because, you know, me being 28 or 24 when I started working with them and thinking, Jesus, I've got to get my stuff together because this is, you know, really <laughs> yeah. inspiring. You get into a lot of the archival stuff. Was there anything that really kind of struck you from the early days that was really pretty interesting? Yeah, it's, it goes back to the whole family thing again. I mean, you, you look at the, the clips that I had got from Jimmy Panko, and he released to me all of his archival materials from 1968 to, you know, present day, pretty much. And just to see early in the days, I mean, how they become human beings. You know, you see the, the promotional materials that uh, they did back, you know, with, you know, just album covers and all that, where it's, you know, it's posed and, and all that. But, you know, you see the young Robert Lamb, you know, in a, a small hotel room bed, you know, rubbing his eyes because he's really tired. Or you see Terry Cass making faces and you see Lee in, in Danny, you see a 19 year old Danny in one of, one of the pictures. And so these are, this is a family. This is a group of people that were trying to do something and didn't know if it would work out, but they were doing it because they loved doing it. And you can really feel it in the footage. It's, it's palpable. I've heard this story for a while that by the time they got into the recording studio to do that first album, they had, I don't know how many albums really ready to go at that point. Yeah, there's a there's a bit in the beginning where they kind of talk about how when the band started that Robert had a book of 50 songs and Walt says, wow, those will really come in handy one day. And, you know, <laughs> it's even, you know, all the way through, you know, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I think through like even the fifth or sixth album, there were still songs that hadn't been recorded from those 50 that they had put onto an album. I, I really tried to get to the story. Because, you know, a lot of rock documentaries, they'll, they'll spend 
30 or 40 minutes before even an album's recorded. And I wanted to get right to what they set out to do. I wanted to show kind of in a montage how they became this group of, you know, basically a super group in the Chicago area, just a bunch of musicians who, who Walt had asked to uh, join him in the band. And to that, to recording an album in New York City, and how do you go from this to that? And one of the themes in the documentary is how quickly time passes. And so that's one thing you're going to see in the movie is how everything in the beginning seems very set in time and very, you know, thought out and slow. And then by the time we're in present day, it's like, where did the time go almost? Yeah. It's never stopped, you know? You know, they went through all those times where they were playing little club dates and they were kind of getting thrown out because they wanted to play their own material. They were that confident. Yeah, there's a uh, Joe Montaigne, the actor is in, in the movie, you know, briefly interviewed and he talks about how he was in a band in the Chicago area the same exact time they were and how they would always get calls from the, the club owner saying, you got to come over here and fill in because the Chicago Transit Authority, they're playing all these, they won't play any of the covers and they're playing original stuff. We want them out of here. So can you get here in 15 minutes? <laughs> so it's, it's kind of funny how, you know, just the, the one thing I'm seeing in my career is just believe in yourself, do what you want, you know, do what you feel is best for you. Don't listen to the outside stuff as, as much as you can. And I see that, Definitely learning that from them is that, you know, they just one track mind and just made it because they believed in what they were doing. Yeah, true that they opened for Jimi Hendrix at one time. Yeah, they the, the, the frustrating thing about that was that there's no pictures of it, but there's a bunch of corroboration. So, I mean, we know it's true, but it's, it's kind of hard to uh, it's very difficult to put that section together because there's so many different stories on it. And, almost, and there's no footage of them with them, which, you know, kind of lends itself to the, the Hendrix you know, mysticism, but yeah, they, he, he, he apparently said that uh, Terry Kapp was the best guitarist he'd ever seen, and he's not even listed in the top 100 guitarists of all time in Rolling Stones magazine, and then it becomes, okay, what's the deal here? <laughs> Where's Terry Kapp on that list? Because he's got to be at least top 10. You're right about that, and when you listen to those earlier albums, those guitar solos that he played just send chills up your spine. Yeah, they're so inventive. I mean, Lee, Lee says that, you know, he could play a lead, a lead guitar, a rhythm guitar, and sing the lead vocal simultaneously. And he had taught Lee how to play guitar, pretty much. And Lee says, you know, people come up to him and say, hey, you're not supposed to play with your thumb. You know, you're not supposed to use your thumb when you play guitar. And Lee says, well, that's how Terry did it, so that's how I do it. You know, I remember what, listening to these guys with my dad. I'm telling you, it's one thing where we both agreed how great this band was. It's almost multi-generational, and you must still have seen that in the crowds that were coming to watch the band. Oh, yeah. I mean, you see in the front row, you'll see a, you know, a 10-year-old. 25-year-old, 60-year-old, and sometimes even an 85-year-old. I mean, it's, that's the real marker of great music, I think, is when it means something to all ages, to different generations. You know, it's, I mean, I, what you said about your dad, it, I kind of have the same experience with mine. I mean, I, I have a very good relationship with my dad, but I do remember growing up and, you know, I loved this band when I was in grade school. I mean, I made a short film in seventh grade and used Saturday in the park at the end. Be able to go and see them perform about 250 times now to see the same reactions. I, I'm telling you the same exact reactions to Saturday in the Park, no matter where you are in the world. You know the part in the song about halfway to two-thirds through where it goes back to the original piano intro. Every right. single crowd stands up and starts clapping. 
they they stand up out of their seats at the same exact moment. It's I mean I know I'm repeating myself, but huh. it's repeating that it, it doesn't matter where you are. It's the same thing. That's amazing. You know the power of music, Peter. I I know that uh, the band has gone through its uh, change in personnel over the years. That you were able to get uh, former drummer Danny Serafin for the film to to comment. And uh, what did he have to say about his experience? Because I know it didn't end well for him. You know, Danny was very gracious. He, you know, I was, and he was just as wary of me as I was of, not necessarily wary of him as a person, but just wary of what he would think. You know, here comes the nephew doing a documentary paid for by the band, da 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 da. Yeah. And that that wasn't the case at all. He let us in. He, you know, he invited us into his house and we interviewed him. And he was very honest. He didn't. He didn't seem. You know, there was no bitterness. He didn't. When he was describing the early stuff, at least, I mean, there was no, you know, I regret doing this. I wish I had never met them. It was none of that. You know, he told the story. He told it honestly. And, you know, it was, I was, we were really fortunate to get him in the film. And I'm very thankful that he's in it with what happened with him. The end of the career, he was honest with that too. And you'll you'll see that in the documentary. I mean, the, the doc doesn't hold back. And I know that he's in a good place. His band, California Transit Authority, is is uh, really good. And I think he's probably past all of that at this point. But on the other hand, Peter Cetera had nothing to do with it, correct? Correct. We definitely tried. Um, you know, I, it's not my position to say you know why he didn't do it. I just got the sense that he just didn't want he didn't want to uh have anything to do with it you know it's probably the same thing that i thought with with danny that you know he probably felt that it was going to be a band edited documentary and that he'd be made to look a certain way and that's fine you know he's there's, there's no requirement for him to be involved but it's unfortunate because i was really looking forward to giving everybody you know a fair shot to say yeah. exactly what they wanted same thing with bill champlin he didn't he wasn't in it either and mm. It's just, what are you going to do? I mean, you, you make the movie you can, and you don't get too bogged down with trying to question, oh, why didn't he do this? Why didn't he do it? You know, it's ruining the movie, and it, it didn't ruin the movie. The movie's really good, and I'm really happy with it. Good, good. Well, you know, I I got to interview, I, I got to go backstage when I was uh, doing college radio, and this was about 1980. Chicago was playing at Summerfest in Milwaukee at the time, and I got to go back and interview Lee Lochnane and Peter Cetera. I was actually warned about Peter Cetera, that watch what you ask, <laughs> you know, he's kind of prickly. And sure enough, he kind of came across as someone who just really was giving me, you know, those uh, those pat one word answers, whereas Lee couldn't have been nicer, you know? Yeah. I mean, Lee's, Lee's been the real champion of this movie, too. I mean, he sat down three or four times, so did Jimmy. But Lee, Lee's really, I, I would say everybody's completely honest on camera, but he, he really bared his soul and uh, really made the movie better for it. But, it, you know, it's for Peter, you know. It's honestly, one of the greatest voices of all time. Yeah. He doesn't, he's not, he doesn't need that praise from me, but I just want to say that, I mean, I still listen almost every single day to Chicago and, you know, his voice is amazing. Well, and the same goes for Danny as a drummer. I remember seeing Buddy Rich on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and he said his, Johnny asked him who his favorite drummer now is, and he, he said it was Danny. Yeah, Danny was a killer. You know, he, in the doc, uh, Jimmy even says, you know, it's just that, that feel, he had that feel, you know, that that kind of rhythm and blues 
backbeat. I can't remember exactly the phrasing he used, but it was he said the first time you saw him play, it was just like, wow. You know, somebody, that's the thing about the, the entire band, it seemed, is that they, they enjoyed watching each other play. Yeah. And I think you can see that in the early days, especially with Tanglewood, and you just watch, you know, the, the entirety of Ballet for Grown Buchanan at Tanglewood. Yes. And uh, to see the way they're reacting to each other, it's just, it's electric. What has the process been like to get the film submitted to to festivals? Has this been the more difficult part of the whole thing? Uh, without a doubt, the most difficult part. I mean, it there doesn't seem to be a genuine consen- or a general consensus on how to submit to a festival. Yeah, because I mean, you 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 obviously you can submit online, but it's almost like you know when you're younger and you're going and trying to submit to a, a job application at like you know any department store. It's like, oh, well, su- submit online. We'll, we'll look at the application, and you almost feel like they're never going to look at it. Right. So we're, you know, it's just a battle of messaging the heads of the festivals and seeing if they're actually watching it and not just an intern on a, on a small screen. I and mean, you want to make sure your movie, everybody does. It's not just this one. Everybody wants to make sure their movie gets the, the you know, proper viewing experience. But I think with a band and an entity that's been around this long, it's kind of people have the perception that it's boring, I guess, just the idea of it, because there's no edge to it, really, to, in, in their mind. But when you watch the movie, there's tons of edge. There's tons of ups and downs they've had to deal with. I mean, it's the quintessential American story of just pick yourself up by the bootstraps and keep going no matter what comes at you. I saw one scene, I think, where the band is, you know, they record differently these days, as you know, and I believe they were in a hotel suite at the time, which was fascinating to watch. Yeah, they, you know, they traveled to New York to record that album, and they all kind of shared rooms. I mean, they, if you, Ian, you know, that the first album wasn't really a hit until the second album came out. I mean, the first album was an underground success, but, you know, they weren't able to really release any singles off of it in a grand fashion until Make Me Smile came out from Chicago too. And so they were, you know, they were making money doing, you know, their shows at the Whiskey A Go Go in LA and all the shows they would do in that way, but they didn't really start becoming a, a giant success until the second album. So it's kind of interesting to see those old pictures of them sharing rooms when you now we have the context of old beginnings. That's, you know, an all time classic. But back then it was just another song they did. I seem to remember it, them just being very mysterious, and I think the reason was is because they were just always on the road. Yeah, they're not, there's not much, it's, there's a lot of archival footage in the documentary, but it, that's not to say it was easy to come across it. I mean, just doing research, you know, outside of talking to the guys in the band, I mean, it was, you know, they tour 100, over 100 shows a year still, so it's it's not yeah. easy to just sit down and have a conversation with them and, and go through and ask them questions. Okay, what what happened this day? What happened that day? Let me tie these pieces together. I had to do a lot of it just on the internet and by asking people who were around that weren't in the band and that sort of thing. And so it was it was a thing where it was like, do these guys exist? Like it just seems like they're <laughs> seems like the music's the only thing that's out there because I can't find anything online about, you know, you know, in a more somber note with, with Terry's death. I mean, you look that up online and there's really not a lot of information on it. And it's like, isn't, wouldn't that have been something that there'd be documentation of? 
stuff like that happened before social media. And, and I know that the guys have had their different relationships and, and marriages and stuff like that. But again, yeah, it's pretty quiet. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, why, why say, you know, it's, I will say that, that a lot of the archival stuff that we, you know, got from TV or, you know, BBC or CBS or whatever, I mean, there, you ask for a clip, you know, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube. And I don't know if you, have you ever seen that clip of uh, the BBC, the uh, top of the pops appearance they made with Terry, Danny and Satara on YouTube. It's incredibly low quality. And I took the risk of, you know, putting it into the movie and hoping that it would exist somewhere. Yeah, it's better form. And luckily it did. I mean, 98% of the stuff that I had picked out was in high quality archived somewhere. So I'm really grateful for that or otherwise we'd have. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the stuff that's on YouTube, it's almost like somebody had a camera standing in front of their TV set or something at the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. On a side note, I recently talked to one of Chicago's founding members, Robert Lamb, about the challenge of working on that second album, the follow up to the critically acclaimed Chicago Transit Authority album. You know, I read an interview with you was a while ago where you were talking about the second album, the follow-up to the first big hit. And and to go back, I remember a producer coming to you at the time and saying, hey, the first album was fantastic. The tour was great. The tough part is the follow-up, and it better be good. Did that put a lot of pressure on you guys, or was that kind of just what you needed at that point? Well, you know, we... at that point, we were still young and really stupid, so, uh, <laughs> so we needed any anything that would that would sort of get our attention. Obviously, the first album was the result of of us rehearsing and rehearsing and writing and, and you know just kind of getting ready to go into the studio for the first time. But the second album was sort of more more self conscious, if you will. You know, we you know we ha- we were touring all the time. We were basically writing the new songs for the second album as we were touring in hotel rooms whenever we could. We didn't really have the chance to rehearse it, you know, uh, like we did on the first album. So it was a it was a very sort of iffy situation. And you know, what can I say? We came through. Uh, this, like I said, the music is, was a little more self conscious and. And frankly, it was in the era of, you know, political unrest everywhere. So that was certainly, right. was certainly a lot of stuff to write about and communicate with our contemporaries in, what, 1970. Well, the good news for Southern Nevadans is that Chicago is coming to the Venetian for a mini residency next month. And Peter Pardini's documentary, Now More Than Ever, The History of Chicago, is now available on Netflix. Well, that does it for this episode of The Fake Show. I'm Jim Tofty. See you back here next time. Take The Fake Show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes.